Okay. Does everybody have a handout? You should all have a handout that looks like this. Well, it's a blessing to be able to come together and stand before the Lord and offer our worship to Him today. And this morning, we have the opportunity as we are preparing ourselves for Easter to consider the second coming of Jesus. Please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 21, if you haven't already. And what we see here, friends, is the grand future promise of Scripture. Jesus has already conquered sin and death for believers when He came to earth the first time. But when He comes back again, He's going to call up His own. He's going to redeem Israel as a nation. He's going to defeat the rebellious. And He's going to establish a new kingdom. We don't see all of that in our passage, but we do see the culmination of His second coming here. Jesus is coming back, friends. Is that exciting? I look forward to that day. And you know, that also just makes me think, are we ready for Him to come back? When Jesus returns and we see Him, is He going to be pleased with us when He comes back? That's a convicting thought to me. Because if I received a divine letter from a dove coming down from heaven that says that Jesus is returning this evening, or next week, or soon at all, as I've been thinking about that, I think my life would change. My focus on Christ would increase My confidence in Him would not be shaken. What the world offers would pale in comparison to being with Christ. I think more practically, I would be desperately sharing the gospel with my kids. I wouldn't be able to keep my mouth shut at work that Christ is coming back. Sin? What does that offer? Our King is coming. What is he going to find you doing? A life lived for God in everything. A love for God with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength is what he expects of us. So how are we living in love for God? Jesus may come today. When I think about that, it shakes my soul a little bit. But it also gives me hope and joy. It makes me excited, and it makes me want to live for Him with all of myself. I've been convicted in my study this week that when we set our eyes on Jesus, when we consider what He is going to do when He returns, that we will find Him to be far greater than we perceive Him to be now. At least that's what I've found for myself. We remember His love and His grace and His compassion to save us. And we're right and good to remember those things. But I'm afraid that perhaps we do not see Him as our King. You see, a king gives orders and his servants jump to obey Him. And if the king is a good king, his servants jump to obey with gladness and awe in their hearts. They do not hesitate, for they see His power. They remember how they came to Him weary and burdened, covered in chains of sin and despair, and their king had compassion on Him. He tore off their chains, He gave them rest, and He made them His own. They know how He deals with His enemies, and they are filled with joy that they are His servants. Yet not only His servants, they are even His children. And as they come to their King with a childlike trust, they know that He will care for them because He is the strongest one there is. And He always keeps His promises. So I wonder, 
could it be said of us that we are living as servants of our king? Or do we have improvement to make in this? How do you see Jesus? When you think of him, do you see a fuzzy image of God who loves you but makes no real demands on your life? Or do you see the God King who conquered your soul and reigns supreme over all things and has expectations for how you live for him? The lamb that was slain has died in your place and he did so out of love and grace and compassion, but he died to make you his own. How do you see Jesus? Friends, he is far greater than we perceive him to be. And as we see the frightening majesty and power of Jesus this morning, my prayer is that we would love and fear him. I'm convicted that we must be filled with an awe for Jesus. And as we behold our mighty and good King, the desire of our hearts should be to worship our King and love our Savior and purify our hearts and jump to obey His commands with joy and gladness. So let's read Revelation chapter 19. We're going to read the whole chapter. Starting in verse 1, John writes, After these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great crowd in heaven, saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because His judgments are true and righteous. For He has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her sexual immorality, and He has avenged the blood of His slaves shed by her hand. And a second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you His slaves, you who fear Him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great crowd and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then He said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow slave with you and your brothers who have the witness of Jesus. Worship God, for the witness of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sits on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war." His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, having a name written on him which no one knows except himself, and being clothed with a garment dipped in blood. His name is also called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses." And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God the Almighty. And he has on his garment and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of strong men, and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. Then I saw the beast And the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war with him who sits on the horse and with his army. 
And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who did the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of him who sits on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and it's just my prayer, Father, that you would help us to see your might and your majesty. Would you please cause our hearts to recognize the fact that you are our king. You are a good king. You're a great king. And we must be filled with awe of you. So as we look at what you promised to do in your return to earth, I just ask that you would impress the greatness of your fury against sin in our hearts. Help us to be glad to be called your servants. And help us to worship you with what we see here, Lord. You deserve it. You demand it. Please help us to respond in a way that's pleasing to you. In your name we pray, amen. All right, well, I think it's helpful to just really briefly look at the big picture of what God says is going to happen in the future because it's really easy to get lost in the details of all this. I'm just going to skim over this because we don't have time to cover everything. But if you want a really helpful resource for understanding what the Bible says about how God is going to work in the future, I'd recommend this book. It's written by Paul Benware, and it's called Understanding End Times Prophecy. Bart's recommended this book before, and I found it to be really helpful. And we see that there are three key prophetic events that lead up to Jesus' second coming, and we're going to touch on them in just a cursory fashion. And I want to do this so we have an idea of where the second coming of Jesus fits into the timeline that the Bible gives to us. On the back of your handout, you're going to see a little picture there. And it will hopefully be helpful in keeping track of where we're at. So let's look at the first future event, which is called the Rapture of the Church. This is the very first event that will kick off the end times that we see in Revelation. Right now we're living in the church age, which is on the very far left side of that picture that you're looking at. The church age started when Jesus ascended to heaven after he was resurrected and the Holy Spirit came to dwell in the hearts of believers. And on a day that we do not know, 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 13 to 18 teach that Jesus will return to the clouds. He's not coming all the way down to earth like he did when he was born as a baby in the manger. He will remain in the clouds, and with a mighty act, He will call up believers who have the Holy Spirit to be with Him, whether they are alive at that time or they have passed away. Paul talks about that in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18, and also in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51-53. And when Jesus comes back, that is going to be amazing and glorious and worship-inspiring. But it's also a time where Jesus is going to test our works. The next event in the future, at least for believers, is called the Judgment Seat of Christ. And at some point after the rapture, I don't know exactly when, Jesus sits down on what Romans 14.10 calls the Judgment Seat. And He is going to evaluate the lives of every believer that He called up. This is not the great white throne judgment. I want to make sure we're all clear on that. If you are caught up in the rapture, this judgment does not determine if you're saved or not. Jesus saves us and we can never lose our salvation. But Jesus will judge our works. We're saved by grace through faith. And Ephesians 2.10 says, We're created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared so that we would walk in them. And our faithfulness to walk in those good works, our faithfulness to be good stewards of our lives is what Jesus is going to judge. 
Paul, as he writes to believers in Romans 14.10, he says, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 to 15, For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And that's speaking of our salvation. Verse 12 says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will indicate it because it is revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. That's kind of sobering, isn't it? Paul tells us all of our works are going to be judged by Christ. If Jesus is pleased with our works, we are going to get a reward of some sort. But if Jesus looks at our works and he's not pleased, we're going to suffer loss. Not of salvation, we can't lose that. But we will not get a reward. I don't know what these rewards are, the Bible doesn't tell us. But I am sure that they will be amazing beyond our comprehension. Think about it. If we know how to give good gifts to our children, even though we are sinners living in bodies of sin, and if Jesus gives us good gifts now, then these gifts, untarnished by sin, given to believers in glorified bodies, must be amazingly useful to glorify and worship Jesus. And after Jesus calls us up to be with Him and we appear with, before Him at the judgment seat, and before Jesus' second coming to the earth, the marriage of the Lamb is going to take place. We see that in Revelation 19, verses 1 to 10. And this is where the church is eternally united with Jesus. It's going to be an amazing day for us. And that's what's going to happen to you if you're saved. But for, for unbelievers, those who are not caught up by Christ in the rapture, the seven-year tribulation is starting. Just curious, has anyone ever read those Left Behind books? They started coming out in the mid-90s. And I was a much younger lad than I am now. And I remember reading the first Left Behind book and being shocked. In the twinkling of an eye, people all over the world just disappear and everything on the earth changes for the worse. God's restraining grace is removed from the world and people truly manifest the evil that is in their hearts. Satan is given the keys to the world and evil abounds while God judges the world. Steve's in the middle of preaching through this in big church when he has the opportunity to. So we're not going to go into a whole lot of detail here. But as a summary, this is a literal seven-year period. And in the seven years, in the tribulation period, there's one main accomplishment of God that I want to focus on. I'm just going to try and paint the picture. So maybe do your best to just imagine this with me in your minds. Through his vision, John, the author of Revelation, is in heaven and he's observing the events that are taking place. There is a scroll, and it has seven seals on it. And these seals have been holding back God's immense and terrifying wrath against all who rebel against Him for thousands of years. And this scroll is brought forth. The seals on it are so powerful and able to hold back God's wrath that there was no one in all of heaven or earth who was worthy to open the scroll. But for one the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb who was slain but is risen again. His name is Jesus. 
And Revelation 5 shows us how he takes the scroll that is sealed with seven seals from the hand of the Father who sits on the throne. And all of heaven erupts with praise and worship. Worthy is the Lamb to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be the blessing and the honor and the glory and the might forever and ever. And as heaven resounds with praise, the Lamb breaks the seals. The pent-up wrath of God, the fierce judgment against creation who betrayed its creator rushes forth. War and disease and famine and pestilence and wild beasts and plagues and death burst on the earth. The martyred saints are crying out to God to avenge their blood. And unrepentant people hide in the caves and rocks of the mountains. Confronted with the wrath of the Lamb, they would rather die than repent. 144,000 of Israel are sealed for salvation. Heaven is full of an uncountable multitude of people who are shouting with all their might, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels and the elders and the four living creatures fall down and worship God. Heaven is chaotically praising God while judgments are crashing on the earth. And then the seventh seal is broken. And all of heaven is silent for about half an hour. In the presence of the magnificence and the glory of God, where all beings are joyfully compelled to worship Him, that must feel like an eternity. Heaven is silent because the coming judgment is just and it is horrifying. The seven trumpets are brought forth and sounded, and hail and fire and blood rain down on the earth. A great mountain is thrown into the sea and turns a third of it to blood and kills a great many things. A star falls from heaven and poisons a third of the waters. The sun and the moon and the lights in the sky are dimmed. An eagle is flying and shouting woes upon the earth for the remaining three trumpets. And when the fifth trumpet sounds, a pit of the abyss is opened, and from the abyss smoke darkens the air, and locusts like none we have ever seen pour out in a swarm greater than any starling flock has risen from a wheat field. This flock has one job, and that is to torment unsaved man for five months. In those days, men will do anything they can to die, and the Lamb will not let them die. The sixth angel then sounds the trumpet, and armies of the horsemen are released, 200 million of them. And they spew fire and smoke and brimstone out of their mouths. A third of mankind is killed by them. And here's the astounding thing. Revelation 9, verses 20 and 21 says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone which can neither see nor hear nor walk and they did not repent of their murders nor of their sorceries nor of their sexual immorality nor of their thefts this is the theme we see again and again Heaven resounds with worship for God while Satan and his armies and unsaved man in their arrogance refuse to repent of their sin against God. The seven trumpets then give way to seven plagues. Revelation 15.1 says they are the last because in them the wrath of God is finished. And again, heaven resounds with worship for God and for the Lamb. One of the four living creatures gives the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And Revelation 15.8 is just amazing. It says, And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one was able to enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. The glory of God and the power of God boil forth like smoke And we are reminded that God is greater than all. None of the perfected beings of heaven, none of the saints who have glorified bodies and can look upon the face of Christ can approach His sanctuary. 
This wrath is tremendous and terrible, and it keeps all out until his wrath is emptied. This is righteously horrific. This fierce wrath was once poured out on Jesus for me. God is so holy. And He is so righteous and so just. And the severity of my sin is so great that the magnitude of God's response that we see here is what was necessary for Jesus to endure for my sake. When He stepped in front of God's wrath for me, this is the level of fury that He was experiencing. This would have taken me an eternity to repay. But Jesus experienced an eternity of suffering compressed into a few hours as he hung on the cross. What a Savior we have, guys. He offers grace and mercy. His love truly is like none other. His sacrifice is incomparable. But when his mercy is refused... When his offer of salvation is scorned, there is judgment. By the time God pours out the seven bowls of his final wrath on earth, sinners will have been warned repeatedly over and over again to repent. They will have experienced numerous judgments of a terrifying scope, and they will understand that these judgments came from the hand of God. They will have heard the gospel proclaimed from Israel's mouth. They will have heard the gospel from the saved Gentiles in this time. They will have heard the gospel from the two witnesses sent by God. And in spite of all this, they refuse to repent. Revelation 16 verse 9 says, They blasphemed the name of God who has the authority over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give Him glory. In the face of the might and the power of God, these people would rather blaspheme Him than give glory to Him. And so the judgment from God advances. The tide of His wrath is rising. Worship is resounding. His power is filling the sanctuary. And everything culminates in Revelation 19, verse 11. And we see the second coming of Christ to the earth. The Lamb appears to the world again. But this time, His appearance is different. Where He once came in grace and mercy and compassion, He now comes in victory and judgment. He was once born into this world as a baby, but now He will come as a conquering King. In judgment, His countenance has changed so radically that we would barely be able to recognize Him. Listen to John's description of Him. In Revelation, verses 11 to 13 of chapter 19. John writes, verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sits on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, having a name written on him which no one knows except himself, and being clothed with a garment dipped in blood. His name is also called the Word of God. That's a lot to take in. God's judgments are terrifying. And they are just the precursors to this final judgment of the nations. And now that the judgments are finished, heaven splits open like a wall hit by a cannon. The Lamb who was slain is the conquering King, and He violently appears in judgment. Matthew 24, 27 says, For just as the lightning comes from the east and appears even to the west, so will the coming of man be. His appearance will be startling. It will be visible to the entire world, and it will be unbelievably glorious. Matthew describes his appearance further in chapter 24, verse 29. And it says, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heavens will be shaken. At the appearance of our great God, King, the whole universe begins to disintegrate. The sun dims like a candle running out of wick. 
the moon will stop reflecting its light, stars will fall out of the sky as the powers of heaven and earth are shaken. The only light that men will have to see by is the light of the glory of Jesus. Luke 21:26 says, At those signs, men will literally faint with fear. Matthew 24, verses 30 and 31 continue and say, And then the Son of Man, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Friends, when Jesus appears again, he will come in power. And as his power ripples and affects creation, all the people on the earth will mourn, for the king has come. He has power over all of creation. He has power over Satan and demons. He has power to destroy all who oppose him. And he has power to save his own. There is no power like that of Jesus. And in his appearance, he will come in a great glory. His Shekinah glory will not be hidden any longer. And so his glory literally lights up the world. This is the culmination of redemptive history. All of this is happening as Revelation 19.11 shows us Jesus, the conquering king, descending to earth on a white horse. The white horse is spotless and Jesus rides down as one who is victorious. The armies of earth and of Satan are assembled, but the battle is already done. And Jesus is already victorious. When he came to earth the first time, not many knew him. But now, in contrast to the deceit and the lies of Satan, the whole world knows him as faithful and true. As we saw in the seal and trumpet and bowl judgments, his holy nature demands a holy and righteous response to sin. He came first as the Savior of the world, and he was judged by the likes of Caiaphas and Pilate. But now he comes as the judge of the world. He was the suffering servant, but now he comes as the warrior king. Psalm 24, 8 says, Who is this king of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Because Jesus keeps his promises and because he is righteous and holy, he judges and wages war on those who have survived the tribulation and refuse to repent. Revelation 19.12 continues and says, His eyes are a flame of fire. Where the world looked at Jesus in his first coming and had no fear, now the world trembles under his gaze. He sees everything. He sees the hearts of man. He sees the demons. He sees Satan. Nothing escapes his gaze. You know, his gaze used to be filled with tenderness as he gathered the children around himself. They shed tears when Lazarus died. They were full of compassion as he gazed on the crowd and saw they were lost without a shepherd. They looked at Peter with love as he was restored from sin. But that's gone now. The time for that has run out for the world, and now his eyes are burning with judgment. Revelation 19.12 says, And on his head are many diadems. These diadems are crowns that kings or rulers would wear. The fact that he's wearing so many crowns on his head displays his absolute sovereignty over the earth. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. That's a reminder to me that while there's much in Scripture that God has revealed about himself, he remains above us. We will never completely know Him, and no one is like Him. <clears throat> Revelation 19.13 says He's wearing a garment that is dipped in blood. Well, whose blood is that? Isaiah chapter 63 answers the question. 
Isaiah 63 verse 2 says, Why is your clothing red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? The answer is in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 63. It says, I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my clothes. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. Friends, his robe is not covered in his blood from the cross. It is dipped in the blood of his enemies. Jesus has appeared as a warrior king and he will shed blood. That is how he appears. And notice the contrast between him and his armies. Revelation 19.14 says, And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, or following him on white horses. Who are these armies? Well, they're glorified believers, the bride of the Lamb. Friends, you and I, if we are saved, we will be there, witnessing the fearsome Savior judge the world. The believers who are saved from the tribulation are also going to be there, as well as Old Testament saints and the hosts and angels of heaven. All of us will be there. But none of us will need to fight. The armies are not dressed for war. Did you see that? They are not armed. Where the robe of Jesus is covered in blood, theirs are white and clean. They are here to observe the victory of Jesus. This is a glorious day of assurance and victory, friends. There is no tension here. The wicked, unrepentant, the demonic forces, and the great dragon himself, for all their power, for all the rule they had over the earth, for all the ways they made believers suffer, they have no power here. The world is lit by the glory of Jesus. And Revelation 19, verses 15 and 16 say, And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God the Almighty. And he has on his garment and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus has all the power here. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. Where Jesus once spoke words of comfort, he now speaks words of death. As he spoke and created all things, so now he will speak and end all rebellion. He alone wields this sword to slay the wicked. None else are needed. He strikes down the rebellious in judgment and power, and he rules them with an unbending rod of iron. Where Jesus once drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs so that we may be saved. He now forces the wicked to drink their own cup of the wrath and the rage of God. He truly is the King of kings and Lord of lords. In Revelation 19, verses 17 and 18, the focus changes and John says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of strong men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. That is really graphic we see here that an angel is the herald of what's to come. He stands in front of that dying sun in a place where all can see him, and he cries out to the birds with a loud voice and invites them to feed on the carnage to come. <coughs> and notice this. The angel is declaring victory before the battle has been fought. At the great supper, the birds will eat the flesh of kings and commanders and strong men and horses and those who sit on them and all men. This is a wholesale slaughter. To be killed and left to be eaten by birds is the ultimate indignity. Especially for proud kings and mighty military commanders. 
And that same shameful event waits for all the unrepentant, blaspheming God-haters of this world. Commentator named Joseph Seiss says, This tells already an awful story. It tells of the greatest of men made food for the vultures, of kings and leaders strong and confident, devoured on the field with no one to bury them, of those who thought to conquer heaven's anointed king, rendered helpless even against the timid birds, of vaunting gods of nature turned into its cast-off and most dishonored dregs. And what is thus promised soon becomes a reality. The great conqueror bows the heavens and come down. He rides upon the cherub horse and flies upon the wings of the wind. Smoke goes up from his nostrils and devouring fire out of his mouth. He moves amid storms and darkness from which the lightnings hurl their bolts and hailstones mingle with the fire. He roars out of Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem till the heavens and the earth shake. He dashes forth in the fury of his incensed greatness amidst clouds and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun frowns. The day is neither light nor dark. The mountains melt and cleave asunder at his presence. The hills bound from their seats and skip like lambs. The waters are dislodged from their channels. The sea rolls back with howling trepidation. The sky is rent and folds upon itself like a collapsed tent. It is the day for executing an armed world. A world in covenant with hell to overthrow the authority and throne of God. And everything in terrified nature joins to signal the deserved vengeance. Zephaniah 1, 14-18 also talks about this day. And it says, Near is the great day of Yahweh. Near and coming very quickly. Oh, the sound, the day of Yahweh. In it, the mighty man cries out bitterly. A day of fury is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and thick darkness. A day of clouds and dense gloom. A day of the trumpet and loud shouting against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on me men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against Yahweh and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the fury of Yahweh. And all earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy for he will make a complete destruction, indeed a terrifying one of all the inhabitants of the earth. (coughs) This is terrifying. This is God's wrath against sin. But even in the face of this divine wrath, in the light of this glorious splendor, Satan and his armies refuse to back down. Revelation 19.19 says, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war with him who sits on the horse and with his army. Everything is set. Satan has mustered the most powerful army he is capable of. They are screaming their defiance at the Almighty, the conquering Lamb, and in their pride they are ready to make war. And against this massive army stands the rider clothed in red. Everything's culminating in this moment, and before there can even be a battle, it's just over. Revelation 19.20 says, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who did the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Before there can even be a battle, Jesus captures the army's leaders, and he throws them into the lake of fire. This is the final destination for all who rebel against God, and these two are the first to be sent there. After Jesus dispatches the leaders, he turns his attention to their armies. And Revelation 19.21 says, And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sits on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. It's hard to comprehend the devastation that we'll see here. John Phillips writes, Then suddenly it will all be over. In fact, there will be no war at all in the sense that we think about war. There will just be a word spoken from him who sits astride the great white horse. Once he spoke a word to a fig tree, 
and it withered away. Once he spoke a word to howling winds and heaving waves, and the storm clouds vanished and the waves fell still. Once he spoke a word to a legion of demons bursting at the seams of a poor man's soul, and instantly they fled. <coughs> now he speaks a word, and the war is over. Another word, and the panic-stricken armies reel and stagger and fall down dead. Revelation chapter 20 tells us that Satan doesn't escape either. He is captured and he's thrown alive into the abyss for the thousand-year reign. And after that, he is released and judged and thrown into the fire. Christian, this is your God. Do you fear him? As you behold His glory, are you struck with awe of Him? He is a mighty and good King, is He not? And friend, if you are not saved, if you have not believed in Jesus as your Savior from your sin against God, then this is the judgment and fury that hangs over your head even now. And I would beg you, turn to Jesus. He stands here with arms outstretched. Go to Him. Beg Him to save you and make you His own. (coughs) For those of us who are saved, as we behold our great God, how should we live in light of who He is? We've got three things for us to consider. (coughs) First, We should worship our Savior. How can we not when we see the majesty of God? How can we not when we see His wrath against sin? That's what He suffered for me. We should worship our Savior because this is what He has saved us from. One day, Jesus is going to come back and He will make everything right. He will judge the afflicted. He will will judge the unrepentant. He will afflict those who afflicted His saints. And as we see His might and majesty and glory and justice, as we see how He keeps His promises going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, we should fall on our face and worship God. There's nothing else we can do. Are you seeking to know the glory of Christ so you can worship Him? Second, we should obey our King. Again, in light of who He is, why would we want to do anything else? Jesus is good and kind and compassionate. He is lovely and beautiful. But He is also majestic and fearsome. He truly is omnipotent. And so if all of these things are true... Why would we think that we can receive instruction from Him and not do it? Why do we treat His commands as things to be followed one day and ignored another? That's convicting to me. On the contrary, this should magnify our love for God because we see just a little bit more the depth of the sacrifice He made for us. He is our hope. If you are saved, you are His child. And in light of that, we should be living for Him with all of our lives. You know, 1 John 3.3 says we should purify ourselves as He is pure. 2 Peter 3.10 and 11 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be found out. Verse 11 says, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Does that describe you? Finally, we should long for the lost to be saved, friends. You know, I think we may be tempted at times to think the world has it coming. They deserve it. Can't wait. But friends, I'm convicted that we should not be like Jonah. 
We should not be sitting under our plant and gleefully rubbing our hands and eating popcorn as we wait for God to rain fire down on the world. No. We should be filled with desperation and desire for the world to know Jesus. We should long for them to be saved from the wrath to come. Friends, seeing Jesus like this should compel us to go to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to the world, and proclaim the name of Jesus so that some may be saved. How is your heart affected? Do you long for others to be saved by Jesus? Are you going out and telling others of His name? When we see Jesus like this, how can we not? Friends, our time is short. When Jesus comes back, is He going to find us walking worthy of Him? He's worthy of our love. He's worthy of our fear and our awe for Him. And He is worthy of our obedience. And His command is that we give Him all of our lives. Nothing held back. Revelation 22, verses 12 and 13, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Friends, let's labor for Jesus, for the sake of His name, so He finds us worthy when He comes back. That day might be today. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we come before You and what do we say? I just ask that You would help us to see You as You are. I need you to do work that we can't do. And fill us with a conviction that you are our king. You're a good king. But Lord, you give us commands. Far too often, we look at them as optional. Please forgive us of that. Please help us to be overwhelmed with who you are so that we can worship you like the hosts of heaven do, like we will one day do when we are with you. Please, Father, for the sake of your name, would you help us to walk worthy? Would you help us to live for you? Would you help us to love you? Would you help us to proclaim your name to the world so that some may be saved? Lord, your wrath is fearsome. Please help us to see your glory and love you and live for you. In your name we pray, amen.